All right, well, let's go ahead and get going. Um, as I mentioned, a few handouts on the, the chair down here. Um, we're continuing our study in the book, Redemptive Reversals and the Ironic Overturning of Human Wisdom. And today we're in chapter four. So chapter four is titled, The Christian Life, Power is Perfected in the Powerless. Um, and as we've walked through this study, if you've been following along, um, Beale, the author, uh, G.K. Beale, has been giving us example after example of how God uses irony in the way that he deals with people, in the way that he deals with his creation. And so uh, Beale's been walking us through scripture and giving us you know, examples to help us understand what is irony, which we've talked about a couple times already, and you know, where do we see these ironies playing out in scripture. Uh, if you recall from some of our past lessons, he has a couple of specific theological ironies that he's uh, defined for us. So in the first couple chapters that Pastor Fry walked through, uh, he talked about what he calls retributive irony, which is a negative irony. It's where God judges people um, in ways that are consistent with the particular sins that they are guilty of. And so he gave a lot of examples, but one would be, you know, um, the way that God dealt or judged Israel, uh, who was turning from God to idols, to idol worship. And essentially, you know, God tells them that just like the idols they're worshiping are physically blind, mute, deaf, inanimate objects, God is going to make um, idolatrous Israel spiritually inanimate, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, um, spiritually mute, unable to respond to God in faith. So he's judging them in a way that's consistent with what they're guilty of, idolatry. He's, he's turning them into spiritual, you know, wooden blocks, essentially. Uh, then, last week, we sort of flipped over and started to look at the positive side of, or the positive ironies that we see in Scripture, which Beale calls um, redemptive ironies. And so in those, we started looking at ways in which God blesses his people in ways that are ironic, right? You see the story, like we talked about narrative irony, if you remember, you see the story going in one direction and then it flips uh, into a positive direction. It goes from a negative to a positive, and there's so many ironies that you can pull uh, out of these examples that Beale's given us. Last week, in particular, we were talking about ironies related to salvation, the way that God has saved his people in ways that are ironic. Um, this week, what we're looking at is uh, the particular ironies around how God's power is shown forth in the weakness, the powerlessness of his people. And so... That's sort of the irony to keep in the back of your mind as we walk through all of these examples is God is showing his power and his strength in our powerlessness and weakness. So Bill starts the chapter uh, reminding us of the story of Joseph. And, you know, I don't have to go through all the details of the story of Joseph because that's one that we talk about from the time that we're young children upwards. So everyone's familiar with the story of Joseph. But uh, Beale gives us this example to sort of get our minds uh, ordered around what he's going to talk about 
in the chapter. And so, you know, in Joseph's story in particular, we see God's sovereignty, right? We see God's sovereignty in what he's doing in the life of Joseph and how he's using the evil actions of Joseph's brothers to bring about blessings for not only Joseph, but his brothers, his family, and ultimately all of the nations uh, around Egypt and all of the surrounding nations in that area, and ultimately all of the nations of the earth, right? Because um, as we, you know, trace the story of Joseph, we see that uh, even though his brothers you know, sell him into slavery, even though he experiences multiple setbacks throughout that story, you know, he's, things start to look positive, and then he experiences a setback. He gets thrown in prison. Um, throughout all of that, God is working out his sovereign plan, and uh, you know, when it all comes together in the end, you, you see it. Um, in particular, you know, God uses these uh, sinful actions of his brother's of Joseph's brothers to put Joseph in the right place at the right time in order to preserve uh, his family, in order to preserve that promised seed of Abraham through the line of his brother Judah. And uh, ultimately, the nation of Israel comes out of this, right? We see Joseph's family moving to Egypt, ultimately uh, suffering under slavery but this also is a blessing to them because it keeps them distinct as a people group. Because of that persecution, they never integrate into pagan society, pagan Egypt, like they were already doing in the land of Canaan. They had already started to integrate into that pagan culture. Well, now, in slavery in Egypt, as terrible as it is, it keeps them distinct as a people group until the time that God ultimately delivers them out of Egypt and to the promised land. So it's amazing to see all of the ways that God is sovereignly acting in this, all of the good that comes from this, even though it started with the sinful actions of Joseph's brothers hating him, being jealous of him, throwing him into a pit, and selling him into slavery. So Beale reminds us of this, you know, and brings us to that verse that we are all familiar with in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, um, where Joseph tells his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This is more than just you know, an astute observation on Joseph's part. This is a statement of how God deals consistently um, with his creation, right? Even though there's sin throughout the world, God uses even you know, the sinful ways of men to bring about his good purposes. And nowhere in Scripture is this you know, stated maybe more clearly than Romans 8, verse 28, uh, you know, where Paul says, uh, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Right? So Bill just reminds us of this at the outset, that you know, we see so many instances where uh, God is using even the worst circumstances to bring about good for his people. And he does this because he's sovereign. Now, for us Reformed folk, you know, we know those verses, right? We know Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, uh, Joseph's telling his brothers that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We know Romans 8, 28, um, because we 
You know, we believe in God's sovereignty, and these are things that we talk about regularly. But it's one thing to know these things, and it's another to truly put them into practice when we are struggling or when we're going through trials. Um, you know, when we're, you're in a lot of pain, it's not always as easy to truly trust upon these promises. But Beale reminds us that we have to trust in these things because God has promised us that he works all things together for good according to his purposes for those who are called according to his purpose and so that's something we have to to cling to and um, you know we can see examples in scripture but I'm sure uh, all of you have seen examples in your own life where this has been true even the the worst circumstances God has turned into good uh, on your behalf and so Bill reminds us of this. He, um, he reminds us that God often uses these trials and circumstances, what he calls the pits of life, you know, referring to Joseph being thrown in the pit. Um, he, he reminds us that God often uses these situations to strengthen our faith. Uh, you know, he uses them specifically to build us up in our faith. And then um, he also goes through and gives a few examples from the, um, the words of Jesus and the Gospels where Jesus um, uh, points out these ironic ways in which God blesses even those who are lowly and meek and mild, um, the ones who would appear to be the weakest in the world. Uh, God often is blessing them um, in a special way. Uh, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first, indicating the honor that God um, will show to those who lead humble lives and who follow Christ. In Mark chapter 10, verses 43 to 44, Jesus rebukes his disciples uh, who would seek to have powers over power over others and to be given a special place of honor you know, in front of men. And uh, Jesus says there, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So again, Jesus reiterating the humility um, that we as followers of Christ are to show. After all, Christ gave us the ultimate example of humility in going to the cross on behalf of his people. And then in Mark chapter 10, verse 39, Jesus reiterates the point that uh, love for the world and one's present life is opposed to love for Christ and for the eternal life that only he can offer. He says there, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So again, we see these, these ironies, right? The first will be last, the last first. Whoever um, will, who would find his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Um, these ironic ways in which God is blessing those who are meek and lowly and humble. And so again, this is in keeping with Beale's theme in this chapter of God's power and greatness being shown in his blessing of those who are weak and powerless. Or those who appear to be weak and powerless. And so we'll go ahead and walk through these, um, these various ironies that Beale's uh, highlighted for us. Uh, at the end, if we have time, I'll walk through some of the practical applications. He gives ten 
practical application specifically at the end of the chapter, and that's what's in these handouts. Um, we may not have time to go through all of them in detail, but I think what you'll see is that as we walk through the ironies that uh, Beale brings out in the chapter, we'll basically cover all of these. You know, at the end of the chapter, he essentially goes back and re-summarizes everything he said, but I thought it was really helpful the way he did that, laying out those 10 practical applications, and so I wanted to print those out, so if you want to take them home and sort of use them for part of family worship or personal devotion, I think it was uh, really helpful things just to think over, um, you know, the ways in which God has, has blessed us so wonderfully, even in our weakness. But let's go ahead and walk through the chapter here. Um, the first irony that we see is that God brings good out of evil. Now, we've already talked about that a bit, right? We've talked about the example of Joseph, of God bringing good out of evil. But if we're really thinking about it, the ultimate example of God bringing good out of evil is the cross. There's no greater evil that's ever been committed in the history of humanity than, sac- than crucifying Jesus Christ, our righteous and sinless Savior, on the cross. And yet, out of that, God brings about the greatest blessing for his people and the greatest glorifying of himself in the resurrection of Jesus and in the blessing of his people with eternal life. And so when we look at, you know, the greatest evil ever committed, God still used that to bring about the greatest good of all time. And if we look to Christ as our example of how we are to walk, um, then we should not expect anything different for us. We should not um, think that we are not also going to suffer like Christ, but that as a result of that, God is not also going to bring about great blessings for us through that suffering. We know that this is a way that God works. And so uh, we, we know from Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, you know, he tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We had a, a really good study on this, you know, in our small groups recently, going through that book, Shadow of the Cross, of, is it uh, Chantry? Walter Chantry, yeah, awesome book. I mean, it's such a small book, but so packed with, with good um, applications. But, you know, we spent time talking about this. As followers of Christ, uh, we have to expect that we are going to suffer like Christ suffered, but we're also going to be blessed through that suffering as Uh, God brought about blessing through even uh, Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. Um, Beale makes this point in the book uh, where he says, Christians should reflect in their lives the same paradoxical pattern of their Lord's life. We also must persevere in faith through temptations to compromise. When we remain steadfast in belief, we also, like our Savior, will suffer tribulation. Yet our victory lies in the continued maintenance of faith in the face of discouraging circumstances. So our victory is not in avoiding suffering. Our victory is in being brought closer to God, being strengthened in our faith through that suffering. And it's, you know, the sovereign work of God in us that accomplishes this. 
Um, at the end of uh, that passage in Romans that we uh, looked at, you know, verse 28, um, Paul continues his thoughts um, and essentially, you know, closes out his argument by building to, uh, you know, those verses that we all know as being some of the grandest and most comforting verses in all of Scripture. Um, Paul acknowledges the suffering that we will all share in, saying that we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but then he reminds us that this suffering it, you know, is not going to separate us from the love of God. In fact, it's going to bring us even closer and even deeper into the love of God. And so Paul writes there in verses 36 through 39, As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There Paul himself makes that connection, that despite our suffering, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And actually, it is part of our suffering that we are brought closer to him. The next irony that Beale lays out for us is what he refers to as the surpassing greatness of the power of weakness. Just like the title of the book, the titles of his chapters, the titles of the sections are really good. I like the way that he he uses words to to convey these ideas uh, in unique ways. But what he's honing in on here is that uh, the weakness and human frailty of God's people just further goes to amplify God's power. And so, um, in particular, we see that while we are, as Paul says, jars of clay, um, and as we're often overcome by afflictions, God preserves his people, and in doing so, he shows forth his great power and his great love for his people. Um, In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, we see this. Um, There Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We see in this passage the same assertion as before, um, that we will suffer just as our Savior has suffered, but that we are also blessed by his life. And we'll struggle with difficulties in this life, but ultimately God will show his power in delivering us through those difficulties. Continuing in that same passage, we also hold to our hope that as we endure, our suffering is turned to triumph. In verses 16 through 18, Paul continues his argument where he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So here we see a double blessing in our suffering. On the one hand, our inner self, despite our suffering, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Our faith is strengthened, our hope in God is fortified, and our daily communion with the Lord becomes sweeter and sweeter as we persevere through these sufferings and we continue to go back to him day by day for strength. On the other hand, the other blessing is that we know that the glory that we look forward to in eternity is far beyond our comprehension, and the joy that we'll have in his presence is far greater than any we've ever known. And so we see both of those blessings in our suffering, the present blessing of walking closer with Christ and the future blessing knowing that we will be with him in eternity and learning to trust in that rather than trusting in the things of the world or our own strength. Then later in the same book in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, Uh, we see that the Christian life is a paradoxical one. There, Paul writes, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. To unbelievers... Christians appear to be suffering, but in reality, Christians possess the greatest blessings of all. Where unbelievers see Christians in sorrow, the truth is that Christians are able to simultaneously rejoice despite that sorrow. Where unbelievers see Christians being materially poor, Christians have the privilege of sharing the gospel, which is what is needed to make others spiritually rich. And where unbelievers see Christians as having nothing, Christians know that they truly possess everything in Christ. So it's the Christian's joy and hope, in spite of the weakness and suffering that we endure, that testifies before the world to God's surpassing greatness and power. The next irony that Buell raises for us is that Foolishness is wisdom. (laughs) Uh, The first part of this irony is that godly wisdom is foolishness to the world. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now we know this is true, right? Because we see examples on a daily basis, of unbelievers who otherwise are very intelligent, um, very wise, maybe very logical, very good at solving problems or laying out issues in a logical, rational way, um, and yet they reject the gospel. In fact, sometimes they're the ones who are the most uh, opposed to the gospel. Um, The people that society would deem intellectuals or thought leaders Uh, often have an allergic reaction to the gospel 
And when they start to make arguments against Jesus and against God, um, all of a sudden the logic starts to fall away, right? The, the arguments or the way that they were able to work logically before, now they start to have to be illogical, and the arguments often devolve into basically an emotional argument of, well, you know, ultimately God can't exist because he doesn't meet my standards. He doesn't fit what I say is right. Um, and this is because, as Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, spiritual truths are spiritually discerned. Right? It, we don't come to a faith in the gospel through intellectual arguments. It's God's grace and his spirit working in us, granting us faith that brings us to faith. But this is also a source of comfort right, for, for all believers um, because God doesn't save those who are the smartest or the most clever um, or the most wise among us. Um, he saves unconditionally. In fact, he often saves the meek and the mild, the ones who are not held in high honor by society, the common folk, if you will, in order to put the arrogant to shame. And Jesus makes this point in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 26, where he prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I love that verse. Uh, what a gracious Lord we serve. He's revealed himself not to the wise or the strong or the powerful, but rather to the poor, repentant sinner who clings to Christ in faith. Now, on the flip side, we know that worldly wisdom is foolishness with God. Right? We said uh, the wisdom of the or that uh, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world, well, the opposite is also true, that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. What is the wisdom of the world? Well, the wisdom of the world would say that the creature is to be worshipped rather than the creator, as we see in Romans 1. Um, the wisdom of the world says that the individual is essentially a God, you know, you and me, uh, and encourages individuals to view themselves this way, as being all-knowing, you know, all-powerful and always right, of course. You know, every man is right in his own eyes. Um, the wisdom of the world says to worship yourself accordingly, right? If you're God, you might as well worship yourself. Do what's best for you and seek whatever glorifies you above all other things. And the wisdom of the world makes no room for a creator God who sits on his throne and judges his creation. Rather, worldly wisdom reverses that. Worldly wisdom puts the creature on the throne as judge over the creator. And this is why the wisdom of the world is folly with God, as we see there in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 18 and 19, where Paul says, Let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age. Let him become a fool that he may become wise, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Paul reminds us there that if anyone thinks himself to be wise in this age, wise in the world, that we need to humble ourselves and to seek the wisdom of God that begins with the fear of the Lord. Lastly, Paul reiterates that God uses those who are foolish, weak, and lowly to herald his truth. And this is in order that uh, the gospel 
is advanced not by human wisdom or human strength or human power, but rather the gospel and the kingdom of Christ is advanced by the power of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might, being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, how many of us can attest to being used by God to show forth his glory, despite our lacking, despite our own lowly estate? Blessed is the Christian who realizes that he has nothing to boast in but the Lord. And then the next irony that Beale points out for us is that when we are weak, we are strong. What does he mean here? Well, as we talked about earlier, God often brings us low and shows us our weakness so that we will stop trusting in ourselves and instead depend upon him. And the result of this greater trusting and dependence on the Lord is that we are made stronger. As Beale says, our experience can be no different from our Lord's. We also find our greatest strength in what seems to be profound weakness. We can look at the example from Second Chronicles where King Hezekiah of Judah had faith in God's power to deliver Judah from their enemies. Uh, despite the great might, <coughs> excuse me, despite the great might of the Assyrians, um, King Hezekiah encourages the people to have faith that the Lord their God can save them uh, from the threats of their enemies. We read his words in uh, chapter 32 of Second Chronicles in verses 7 and 8, where he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is, is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Well, ultimately in that story we see Sennacherib, coming to Jerusalem, the king of Assyria, and blaspheming God and insulting God, saying that you know, uh, Assyria and their gods are going to destroy Judah and their gods. And ultimately, you know, Hezekiah prays to God, and we see God send an angel that decimates the forces of Assyria, just destroys them. In effect, saving Judah entirely by his own power, not using the army of Judah, right? And so what we see here is King Hezekiah was right. We have more on our side than they do, but it's not because we have better numbers. It's not because we have more mighty warriors. It's not because we have more chariots. It's not because we have better weapons. We have the Lord our God on our side. He will fight for us. And it was that faith, that faith of the king and the people who followed their king, that ultimately resulted in God delivering them from their enemies by his power.
Well, how does this apply to us? Well, the weapons of the Christians' warfare are no different than the weapons that King Hezekiah and Judah had available to them. Our, the Christians' power does not come from the flesh or from the material world. Our true strength lies in God's providence, first and foremost, and then also our knowledge of and our application of God's word. Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5, through 5, where he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The Christian is called to be a warrior, but it's not a call to physical warfare. Rather, it's a call to spiritual warfare. And we're all involved in that war, whether we acknowledge it or not. But the weapons of our faith, as I've said, are are our faith in God and our knowledge of and application of his word, as Paul says here. As we grow as Christians, we are sanctified by God. He renews our mind after his word. He transforms us into the image of Christ. And as we grow in that knowledge of his word, as we grow in obedience, this also equips us to fight against the forces of spiritual darkness and the lies of the world. We need to keep this in mind um, because we ought to be going to God daily in prayer and in the reading of his word in order that we can be well equipped whenever these forces come against us. And we have to remind ourselves that it is ultimately God who always delivers the victory. And so we have to be trusting upon him, having faith in him, to provide that victory for us rather than trusting in ourselves. But what we see in our battle against spiritual darkness is the irony that when we are weak, we are strong. Paul applies this truth to himself in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, where he writes, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says a lot in that one paragraph. Paul can rest in his own weakness because God's grace is sufficient for him. He knows that God's power is being shown in his weakness. Uh, Paul can even boast of his weakness. Now, if there's anything that goes against the wisdom of the world, it would be boasting and weakness. Right? The world tells us you, you should never admit your weakness. Well, Paul here boasts of it. Why does he boast of it? Uh, because he knows that in his weakness that the power of Christ is resting on him. And that is m- more than sufficient. And he finds contentment in his weakness and persecution, even, um, knowing that when he's weak according to the flesh, he's strong according to the spirit. That's what he's saying. And he may be weak in the world, but he is strong in Christ. 
And because of this, he can rest in that weakness. Now, in closing the chapter, as I mentioned, Beale has a number of practical applications uh, which are shown on these handouts. Um, we do have a bit of time, so I'll go ahead and read through them. I think what you'll notice, there's ten of them, and we've, uh, we've already covered quite a few, but there may be some points here uh, that are um, you know, a little bit outside of what we've covered. So uh, I'm just going to go ahead and walk through them, walk through all ten with everyone. Um, the first one is that since our life is to be like Christ's, our life must include suffering of some kind so that God's spiritual strength can be exhibited in our physical weakness. The second one he points out is that God brings suffering in order to remove anything earthly that we might otherwise be tempted to trust in and to motivate us to look only to him and his word for our sustenance. All right, that one's certainly one we see in our lives, that when we start to love the things of the world, God often takes them away so that we'll trust upon him. The third point that Bill makes is one key purpose of suffering is to cause us to see our need for God's word, since otherwise faith would not be given opportunity to grow. We need to feel our need for God and his word, and often that is part of why we're suffering, because we're not, you know, have you ever noticed that when you're suffering, it's often because you're not in God's word enough, or not praying to the Lord enough? It's Suffering is a way that he draws us to him, where we ought to be. The fourth point Beale makes is our only strength in the midst of suffering lies in knowing, believing, and applying God's word. And it is the Holy Spirit who gives us strength to trust in God's word in the midst of trials and, in addition, gives us comforting joy at the same time. Paul says to the Thessalonians that you became imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The fifth point Beale makes is God takes pleasure in glorifying himself, especially his inscrutable wisdom, by reversing our apparently irreversible situations of defeat and victory. So that's a lot of the ironies we've been talking about this week, right? These reversals where God takes what appears to be bad fortune for us and reverses it into blessing. And that's one of the ways that he shows his wisdom and his sovereignty over all things. The next point Bill makes, number six, is although many Christians experience victories this side of heaven, all must await the ultimate victory of conquering death through resurrection. So again, kind of like we talked about those, those two blessings, knowing that Christ grants us victory in this life, but that the ultimate victory will be with him in heaven. <clears throat> God brings the apparent evil of suffering to cause ultimate good for us. We talked about that a lot at the beginning of our uh, lesson this morning. Number eight, God brings the discomfort of our suffering in order that he would comfort and encourage us through it, <clears throat> and in order that we would be able in the future to comfort and encourage other believers who go through the same sufferings. <clears throat> That's an, another one that we often see in our lives, that God causes us to suffer certain things, and then later in life, we find other uh, Christians or others in the same situation and we're able to minister to them more effectively because we've been through what they're going through. This is another part of God's providence. 
and blessing us with suffering and blessing others through our suffering. <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, um, it's affirmed that the purpose of our sufferings is that God would make us like Christ. The sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. In verse 5, our cruciform life of weakness is the context through which our spiritual strength can be expressed. And then lastly, number 10 there, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it also indicates that suffering causes us to realize that we cannot heal or remove suffering from ourselves. Suffering thus brings us to the end of ourselves and leads us to trust in the resources of, resources of Christ to heal us. Apart from Christ, we are as powerless as dead people. While suffering brings us to the end of ourselves, ironically, it causes us to trust in Christ for strength to endure suffering and to be renewed in the living strength of the resurrected Lord.